0: Welcome to Park Avenue Podcasts Hanukkah Edition. Chag Sameach, Chag Sameach. Uh, today's broadcast is going to be happening on the week of Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, and we have a fabulous friend of the community and friend of mine, Rabbi Sharon Brous, who is going to be in dialogue on Hanukkah and a range of other issues. A dear friend, Rabbi Brous is a leading voice in reanimating religious life in America, working to develop a spiritual roadmap for a soulful justice-driven multi-faith ethos in Los Angeles and around the country. Rabbi Brous is a senior and founding rabbi of IKAR, a Jewish community that launched in 2004 to reinvigorate Jewish practice and inspire people of faith to reclaim a moral and prophetic voice. IKAR quickly became one of the fastest growing and most influential Jewish congregations in the country and is credited with sparking a rethinking of religious life in a time of unprecedented disaffection and declining affiliation. Uh, Rabbi Brous's talk, Reclaiming Religion, has been viewed by more than one and a half million people and translated into 23 languages. She has blessed President Obama and Vice President Biden at the inaugural prayer service, and in 2021 to bless President Biden and Vice President Harris, and to lead the White House Passover Seder that spring. Um, She has all sorts of awards, leads every list of top rabbis in the country, part of an Auburn Seminary Senior Fellows Program, a graduate of Columbia, ordained by the Jewish Theological Seminary. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and three children, my hometown of L.A. Rabbi Brous, welcome.
1: Rabbi Cosgrove, it's so, so good to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: It is so good to have you, and happy (laughs) Hanukkah. Thank Um, you. The Festival of Lights. Um, Rabbi, the the theme is Hanukkah, so um, I could ask you a million questions. We could be part of this dialogue for hours upon hours, but let's start with the focus on Hanukkah itself. Um, There are multiple messages behind Hanukkah. It seems every year we focus on one year it's on Hellenism, another year it's the miracle of the little oil that went longer than anyone thought it would. Um, Sometimes it's a might of the Maccabees, sometimes it's the threat of anti-Semitism. Every year, sort of, we interpret this festival a little bit differently. And so I'm wondering, what do you think the message of Hanukkah is this year?
1: It's so interesting to think about the different ways that the story's told. In our tradition, in particular, you know the the focus on the military victory and then the active de-emphasizing of the military victory because of the rabbinic discomfort um, with the way that our ancestors behaved once they got power. One of the things that I'm thinking about this year is how, in, in some ways, the emphasis on the miracle of lights is, It's in some ways an attempt to expose the rabbinic discomfort with the values and the tactics of the Hasmonean dynasty. I think I think that it raises really important questions for us about extremism and the threat of extremism and what happens when you think that you're fighting for a just cause. And then that just cause ends up harming other human beings in in really in really critical ways. And I think that's a critical warning for us here in the United States. It is certainly a critical warning for us in the state of Israel, where we just saw an election that really um, brought into the mainstream voices of religious extremism that were really uh, actively marginalized before and now are going to be representatives in government and holding real positions of power Um, I I think for and it seems like it's also happening in other countries throughout the world where we're seeing a kind of fringe ideology that is acquiring power and becoming very, very dangerous. And I think what the rabbis were saying to us from, you know, 2000 years ago is be careful, be careful what you do with your power and and so what they're the, you know what I realized um, a couple of years ago, something super interesting um, about the miracle of light, this kind of what maybe even made up miracle of light. The story that the rabbis tell us in the Gemara, you know, the the, the practice that we do in our homes, and I'm sure you do this in your home, too, of um, of at least one Hanukkiah that's lit every night, but really every person in the family ends up lighting their own Hanukkiah, this practice is considered the Mahadrin Mina Mahadrin. This is like the most extreme version of what it could mean to bring light. So I just want to offer, uh, what I'm holding this year is on one level, the rabbis are pushing back against the extremism of the Maccabees, Maybe inventing a miracle of light and then telling us to engage that miracle in the Mahadran way as extremists. But we're extremists not in using military power to harm other people. We're extremists in fighting to bring light into a broken and dark world. And we need to do that with every ounce of strength we have, right? In the most extreme ways. So that's one of the messages of Hanukkah that I'm holding this year. What are you holding?
0: I think this question of where we put our menorah, meaning where we put our Jewishness, is a very serious question that we're asking. I think right now, I I think to riff off of what you're saying, Rabbi, we're living, you know, if if someone plays back the fall of 2022, years from now, there is going to be the narrative of anti-Semitism and Kanye and Kyrie and the precariousness of Jewish identity. And, you know, I just heard in the synagogue that you know, I grew up on Warner Avenue, the synagogue on the end of that street got a rock thrown through it uh, in Los Angeles uh, just last week. Um, you know, I think the Jewish community has expended its, uh, its energy on it, what's with this new resurgence of anti-Semitism. And are we vulnerable? And as you're noting, we're living in this time where we're seeing this um, ultra-nationalist element of, you know, zealotry, right? The the underbelly of um, sort of uh, Jewish identity take shape uh, in in Israel right now. And I feel like I'm trying to reconcile these two narratives, one of Jewish vulnerability here in the diaspora and one of Jewish nationalism run amok in the state of Israel. And I think, you know, you could probably trace both of those elements back to the Hanukkah story itself, Hmm. that they're both, you know, those are both part of the narrative and just like the rabbis of the Talmud, as you say, were trying to make sense of the Maccabean story. Um, I think right now we are trying to make sense of, you know, these double strands in the DNA of, of Jewish identity right now. Um, but, uh, but I am, uh, I think the messaging right now um, for American Jewry is very confusing um, because I think that there's real concern, right, um, with anti-Semitism. And I think... Um, that there's real concern, not just in what's happening in Israel, but what what's happening in Israel holds for the diaspora-Israel relationship. Because I think, um, I don't know what you're hearing in the Los Angeles community, but when you have an Israeli government that, almost like daily, is coming out with um, comments regarding uh, the LGBT community, Religious pluralism, the future of a two-state solution—you um, know what I? What you can't see my air quotes on a podcast, but the 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 Torah of American Jewry, um, mm-hmm. these very values being in breach by um, the elected government of the State of Israel, which incidentally the minister in charge of Jewish affairs, recently announced that, you know, non-orthodox forms of Judaism are a form of darkness or something like that. And right. So how how do you get American Jewry to support a Israel that um, doesn't actualize their Jewish values and P.S. doesn't see their Judaism as Judaism? Mm -hmm. So we're living in a pickle right now
1: we're the darkness that they're trying to expel with the light in some quarters in Israel right now. I mean, look, it's really hard and I have to say it didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, this has been growing. This form of ultra nationalism of Jewish religious extremism and even Jewish supremacy has been growing for decades. And we haven't wanted to talk about it in part because we are so concerned about the reality of anti semitism. And I, I think our community, too many people have stayed too quiet as we have as, as we saw the trends um, be, begin to move over the decades. And now we're really seeing that it's bearing fruit and um, it's a very dangerous time. And, and you're right that we are both powerful and powerless. We're both vulnerable and invulnerable. And that's something that's always been very confusing about Jewish identity. Um, it's something that I think, People, a lot of people who aren't jewish don't understand about us which is even when we're doing really well even when we have college degrees and graduate degrees and you know and, and retirement funds um we still feel very vulnerable because we understand that the particular nature of jewish history is that in an instant the whole world can change for us i mean that's the way that jewish trauma works and um and that's it's unavoidable for us i think that's just part of our it's part of our identity whether we're religious or not religious we kind of understand that our position in society is a temporary position and so we can never get too comfortable um so we've always even when we've been quite quite comfortable and quite powerful we've still always lived under this sort of sensibility of powerlessness And now, and I I mean, you mentioned Kanye and Kyrie. I mean, this stuff, to be very clear, uh, I mean, a week before Kanye spoke, the former president of the United States was threatening American Jews that we needed to get behind this right-wing Israel agenda. And if we didn't, there was going to be a price to pay. And we're seeing people like Nick Fuentes, these really extreme white nationalists, whose whose voices have been given a heksher from you know from the um, from american leadership in a way that was unimaginable pre-2016. And so I, I do think that something has shifted in the um, in American society with regards to Jews. I think we are less safe now than we were before 2015, 2016. I think the tipping point was 2017 Charlottesville. I don't know if you feel the same way. I mean, many of us have sort of tried to identify when did it happen. But I think that having that replacement theory, the lie of white genocide and the placement of Jews at the or or at least the the revealing of Jews at the heart of white nationalism which we all saw on our you know on, on the news on the nightly news that night that was a monumental moment in american jewish history it was a moment that we shifted from being you, you know feeling vulnerable but being pretty well off here in the united states to taking one step closer to really needing to assess what our relationship is to the environment we're in and I know it's hard and scary to talk like this, but I do I do think that a lot of Jews have a sense of kind of conditional connection to the place to the places that we live in, because we see the manifestations of anti-Semitism. We see the normalization of anti-Semitism and, and the ways that people can't really they they don't even distinguish between what's dangerous and what's not dangerous anymore. And we worry, what does that mean for our future? Um what happens? If a real threat actually does come to our people, who's gonna stand up and fight for us when anti-Semitism is as normalized as it it has been over the last several years and especially over the last couple of months. So
0: how do you, you know, I'm asking this just both for people listening, but also because I admire your rabbinate and your leadership personally um, and always have, Um, how do you steer your community through these questions? Meaning, on the one hand, there's vulnerability, there's real questions that you're enumerating about anti-Semitism. Knowing you as I do, um, I know how important justice work is to you. I know how important um, Israel is to your identity, even when Israel disappoints. Um, Israel is, is central to, to who you are and your rabbinate. So, I mean, is, you know, that the art of keeping a community together um, and no two Jews hold the same opinion. Um, are, are there are there ways that you sort of steer this conversation actively daily in your community?
1: I think you're asking a couple of different questions here. One is, you know, how do you sound the alarm without being alarmist, right? Mm-hmm. If our job is to be moral leaders, then, which I do believe is the job of, of clergy, then we have to stand out in front of the community and say the things that people aren't necessarily ready to hear us say and say things that might even scare people and definitely should make people uncomfortable. Otherwise they don't need us if we're not gonna stir stir them up. So how do you how do you sound the alarm without being alarmist? Because once you're alarmist, then you're not a leader anymore, right? You just, you're sending everybody scrambling Um, in a moral panic. And we certainly don't want to contribute to the moral panic. So I'll tell you how I try to walk this very fine line. One is um, a, a study just came out in Los Angeles um, just this past week about, uh, that was mapping the hate crimes in 2021. It took a year for them to gather the data. And of course, the numbers are significantly higher than they've ever been before. It's in part because there's better reporting in the past year in Los Angeles than there's ever been, but it's also because this era that we're living in is an era of political extremism, conspiracy theories, racism, and violence. And and so what we're seeing is there's a spike in hate crimes. Of course, in the category of religious hate crimes, Jews are at the top of the list of the people who are targeted. So I want to talk about that. I want my community to know that we have to be vigilant and we have to be aware of what the threats are. And I also want them to look at the rest of the report, which shows that by far the community that is most targeted is the black community. And the second one after that is the LGBTQ community with a special, with with a, a particular focus on trans folks. And so I want my community to be aware that anti-Semitism is real, that we have to get serious about it. And also to know that we're not alone right now in terms of people feeling vulnerable, People being targeted by those who you know are driven by hatred, by racism, anti-Semitism, bigotry. And so the most important thing that we can do is to take our sense of vulnerability and our sense of fear and instead of entrenching in our own community, instead, reach out and strengthen the alliances that that need that already exist in this city and also in your city, and hopefully in many cities, to strengthen the alliances with other communities that are also on the front lines of this, of this really difficult moment that we're, that we're living in. And that happens in all kinds of wonderful ways. And I think so there, there's something very powerful and empowering that happens when we're feeling powerless and we end up reaching out to other communities that are also being disempowered, but together we build power and we end up creating a different kind of reality for all of us where we actually see that our liberation is very much tied up in one another's, that that Jews cannot be safe in a city in which black people are being attacked on the street. By the way, because black people are part of our Jewish community and family, 12 to 20% of American Jews are people of color. And also because anytime any minority community is attacked, no minority communities are safe. And similarly, to help other communities understand that when there's a rise in anti-Semitism, it's not only dangerous for us, it's dangerous for everyone. It's dangerous for democracy because of the way that anti-Semitism drives a wedge in the movements for justice, that anti-Semitism is one of the most powerful weapons to use to push an ultranationalist agenda and and has been really for more than a century. And so part of what I'm suggesting is that we we acknowledge the vulnerability, we sound the alarm, we're honest and clear-headed about what's happening, but we don't leave people to like kind of scramble around in a, in like a, you know, in naked fear, but instead use our fear and our vulnerability to connect even more deeply to other people who are also feeling afraid and vulnerable and together to build really strong, powerful alliances with a different kind of vision of what, of what we can build together, what kind of society we could live in. Right. You,
0: you talk about alliances. I'm just wondering, in all of your work in progressive politics, do you ever feel um, that your Jewishness, your love of Israel, is um, a, an impediment to you being involved in justice work?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> look, there's there's definitely anti-Semitism in the just, in the racial justice movement. It's um, it's one of the most painful. It's one of the most painful discoveries um, that I have made again and again over the last couple of decades, um, that people who dedicate their lives to fighting for the beloved community and fighting for um, a society that's racially just do not understand anti-Semitism and don't see danger to Jews as a danger to all of us, Um, don't see anti-Semitism as a form of racism, um, and as a danger to democracy. and yeah, it's very painful. and when I'm sitting in those environments and I feel the like the blood rising and I they, and there's a heat, there's a heat in my body and I think, you know and I, all I want to do is I'm having a fight or flight, I realize that leaving those conversations is exactly the wrong thing to do because people fundamentally don't understand anti-Semitism and if we leave, they're not going to understand it better. It's only going to be, it's only going to be that we've there, there's been a successful wedge driven between us, which is the really the the function of anti semitism in our society. And so, what I, what I've really committed myself to doing over the last couple of decades in this space is staying and feeling the heat and understanding that lots of people feel the heat when their own se- sense of identity or their community is attacked. And we need to stick it out and stay in the conversation. And understand and, and articulate why these things are so painful and problematic. This is true about anti-Semitism. It's also, it's also true about Israel. I think a lot of people in the racial justice space and others in the justice movement don't understand the complexity of the the of of the population of the um, people of the state of Israel. Don't understand that just as many of us were living as in opposition to our government under the previous administration, there are millions of people who live in opposition to the right wing extremist policies of the Israeli government and are actively working to build a just and shared society. And I will not, never turn my back on those folks as long as there are still people who are, it, it, I'm talking about Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel who are working together to build a just and shared society. What right do I have as an American to say, like, the whole society, you, you know, is, is worthless or the whole project is illegitimate? I think, and so, so I think we have to stay in the conversation, have those difficult moments where we can actually sort of stretch open each other's understanding. And just as in the course of the last decade or so, We've been actively working to build anti-racist consciousness, um, particularly among non-Black people in this country, like trying to understand the role of anti-Black racism and the way that we all have implicit bias um, and, and trying to do the work of interrogation, of really looking at ourselves and trying to understand the way that racism functions in our own lives, even though we all think we're not racist. I think that people need to do that work with anti-Semitism too, because as we've seen in the last month and a half, there's a lot of implicit bias against Jews. And a lot of people who probably never would have identified themselves as anti-Semites, who are all of a sudden repeating on on national platforms really dangerous anti-Semitic tropes. And so of all people, it's the folks in the racial justice movement who should be leaders in pushing for that kind of interrogation of self-questioning. And if the Jews leave because we're so furious, because how could you be so anti-Semitic and how could you be so anti-Israel and I'm not going to talk to you and I'm not going to stand on the platform with you and I'm not going to partner with you then there's no conversation. So we have to be willing to stay in the dialogue because overall our values are mostly shared values, the values of democracy and civil society, of justice and equity and equality. These are the things that we we can't fight for alone. We have to fight for together. So when we get into those really hot moments, the really hard ones, I really try to stay at the table and shift the conversation.
0: Thank you. And my only regret is that people can't see me nodding my head to everything you're saying. So um, go Rabbi Brous. Rabbi, we are out of time. I have one last question for you, which is what is your favorite Hanukkah custom in your family?
1: We really wanted to try to teach our, our kids growing up that Hanukkah wasn't about receiving gifts. But was not giving. (laughs) I'll I'll tell you. So what we did was, each night we would give Sadaka together. We would make Sadaka decisions and give Sadaka. to different organizations, we gave each kid um, $100, and then we could decide if we wanted to pool collectively our, you know, the money that we were going to give, mm-hmm. and, or if they wanted to do it as individuals. And every night we would do t- uh, tzedakah. And then the night after Hanukkah, we called it Shmanukkah, and we would give them presents on Shmanukkah, because we said there's no place for gift giving. It's, a, it's really about the gifts that we give, not the gifts that we receive. Um, I wouldn't say it went well, um, I, hope, <laughs> I, hope that, I hope that my kids got the point, um, but it is, I mean, we still do collective tzedakah together. Um, now we just, we do it one night where we really sit right. together and we lay out what all of our core values are, and then we make the, the decisions for all the tzedakah that our family's going to give. Um, I hope they got the point.
0: Yeah. What's your that's favorite? That's, nice. that's such a nice custom. I think I'm going to do that for one night of Hanukkah this year. Um, it, it's a little akin. We do that on Yom Kippur. When we sit down in the Cosgrove family before we go to synagogue um, that night and we have that pre-fast meal, uh, we sit down. I uh, every I grew up doing this. We get the checkbook out and we have a big debate over um, who should receive it and the sort of artificiality of it. As I say, we're not splitting it we all need to come to consensus as to who's getting the check this year. And one kid is arguing for the environment, another is arguing for feminist causes, another for Jewish causes, medical research, whatever it is. And we debate and the Haftorah on Yom Kippur reminds us that it's not the fast that God wants, but it's acts of tzedek and acts of justice. And so before we go and afflict our souls, we literally like drop, the check in the mailbox um, on the way to synagogue. So just to remind us what it's all about, Hanukkah is a little less. I'm I'm not the the rabbi or the parent you are, um, but um, I aspire <laughs> I just told to be. I failed. <laughs> um, but um, just just we win it over with sugar. Um, we, we you know what we do? We take out. Because the kids, as little kids, all made menorahs like in nursery and kindergarten. But we take those out of the cupboards and it's like the kids' menorahs. And everyone lights the menorah that like they made in kindergarten. And now they're all grown up, but it's totally cute.
1: Listen, That this is we're coming full circle because that's the Mahadrin Mina Mahajran practice. We are extremists. We light as many Chanukyot as we can because we're extremists in trying to bring light into the world to expel the darkness.
0: Amen, amen. Rabbi Sharon Brous, the senior and founding rabbi of IKAR, I wish you and your loved ones a healthy, happy Chanukah, Chagurim Sameach, Thank you so much, Rabbi, for being with us. We're honored by your presence.
1: Thank you. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach.
0: Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, il becco di sciò, alleluia.
1: alleluia, allelu birchia.